0: I think that's probably the most thing that I want to sort of get out of this conversation with you is that I want to sort of engender, hopefully, the excitement and other people that I feel when I start taking the lid off and like pulling out bits further and further down the stack until you get to the CPU and then go like, oh my gosh, I've got all the way to the bottom. And then someone taps you on the shoulder and says, no, you can go deeper than this. You're like, deeper? This is amazing. And keep on going. That's Matt Godbolt. He's an expert in low
1: latency computing. He's going to teach us some lessons about why it's important to understand what happens between you know, your high level language and when things get executed down at the level of the CPU. For instance, what is a for loop in your high level language actually turned into when it's executed by the CPU? And does that have performance implications? Matt's an important speaker because he has all this knowledge and how he came by
0: it is a pretty interesting story. And it all came out of a lucky break where, you know, an afternoon's <clears throat> work with a friend and, uh, and a bit of JavaScript <laughs> and, and, a, and a memorable last name. <laughs> and and yeah. then here I am. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I carry a certain amount of guilt for that, but that's also just being British. Hello
1: and welcome to Co-Recursive, where I bring you interesting stories about software development. Before we get into the episode with Matt, I have a brief plug. I started a new job, I now work at Earthly. We're building an open source build tool. You can find it on GitHub, you know, search for Earthly. Builds are always a big mess and we're trying to make that situation a bit nicer. But back to Matt, Matt's fame is not all luck as he describes it. We're gonna walk through his story a little bit and I think you'll see that he's been on a trajectory to be the expert in kind of what happens when you get down to the metal.
0: Um, for some time. I was about seven, and I went around to a friend's house, and they had like a, a very, very, very primitive flight simulator that he was flying around, and I was apparently uninterested in that. But when he then showed that you could type in stuff and make stuff scroll up the screen, that was, apparently that was what enthralled me. And so I was very, very lucky to get one of them for myself on my, my eighth birthday. So that was, yeah, 1984. So I've been uh, hacking on computers for... Oh, a long time now—36 years.
1: That computer was the ZX Spectrum, an 8-bit computer with 48k memory and a 16k ROM. Also, it had a tape drive because uh, we were in the era before disks were very common. What did this computer look like? Did it look like picture-
0: computers as we picture them today, or? So it's if you if you have any kind of. Um... Reference point, maybe in this in, in the US in particular, things like the Apple II, IIe, uh. that kind of era, that kind of thing. So the Sync, the Spectrum was um, a relatively small. So the keyboard was probably smaller than a, an average laptop sort of keyboard area. And the keyboard was the computer. Mm. It was the keys themselves were like rubber, they were like a rubbery mat. With indentations in them, which underneath there was a very simple, um, literally just a uh, a, a thin, um, oh gosh, what they call membrane, which made contact or not. So it was a very horrible feeling thing. It was very woolly, very sort of there. And, um, And the whole thing was the computer. You plugged it into a television and you tuned the television into the right channel. And it was blurry, of course, because it wasn't very good. And uh, yeah, and and it was tiny, really. You could hold it in your hand and and sort of wave it around type of thing. And it was notoriously prone to overheating in some cases. And there was an expansion port in the back. Uh, It it was a fun little computer to play around with. You would buy games from the local newsagent for £2.99, which is, you know, about five bucks-ish, I guess. And um, you'd put them in and it was, you know, just like listening to an old modem. Sound, you know, the mm. screeching, whatever. You'd wait four or five minutes to get the 40 odd K of data in, and then you'd play your game. And you'd have to hope as well that there wasn't a the corruption on the tape. It, it would then crash, and you'd have to start again. And, you know, but uh, so it was a lot of fun about that. And you knew you were very much exposed to how the computer worked when you just turned it on, because you'd get a blank screen with a like, okay, what do you want to do? And obviously, the, as a game player, you would just say, and load the thing I'm about to put in on the cassette tape. But if you don't have many games, um, another alternative would be to buy. Magazines from the same news agent you were getting the games, and they would have type in listings at the back, and that's kind of how I got started into in programming. Would be to, you know, the the enthralling uh, picture on the cover of the magazine. Of course, would never actually meet the the quality of the type in listing that you spent, you know, four or five hours typing in.
1: This is kind of crazy, right? Like instead of buying the game on a cassette tape, you could buy a magazine, and then in the back, twenty pages was just all the source code printed out in BASIC. And you would type it in and hopefully you didn't make any mistakes.
0: And then, of course, once you've typed this thing in, you have to save it to the same unreliable cassette tape that you were loading the games off of. So you had to hope that you, A, got it right, B, you were able to save it so you could recover it. Uh, But, of course, you would make typos. You'd make typos all over Uh, the place and that would introduce one sort of to the process of what a program was. So even if you weren't a programmer and even didn't understand what you were typing in, you would get the gist of what it was. And certainly if you were then curious about it, it was a definite leg into discovering how one might make one's own. So that that was kind of how I started, was was start, starting to write little basic programs, you know, literally as in basic the programming language. And then latterly, um, you would start typing in these giant, instead of basic that you would obviously want uh, that you could understand, there would start to be the more and more of these, like, just data statements after data sta- statements. And of course, if you then look into it, you realize that what you're typing in is the machine code of an assembly-based game. Ah. So unfortunately, this computer, the, the Spectrum, did not have a built-in assembler. You actually had to go and buy an assembler. But you could, of course, do it by hand, or if the person who had authored it and sent off their program to the news agent had, like, essentially compiled compiled uh (laughs) assembled their 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 code and then dumped it out as hex and then just said we'll type that all in and then you get a game obviously that's much more intractable to a a user all
1: right i'm gonna get some of this wrong but bear with me so basic is you know a, a basic programming language like 10 print hello 20 go to 10 just keeps printing hello right but to do more advanced things in these games that were in the back of the book they would drop down to machine code machine code is a level below assembly code it's really just raw binary or hexadecimal it's the actual instructions the cpu can execute so matt couldn't really understand this machine code but he wanted to understand it and he wanted to understand what assembly was So assembly is one level above machine code Where machine code might just have a binary representation for a jump instruction Assembly has mnemonics, so it would have like JMP for jump Assembly also has labels, just like in basic So that you can jump to certain locations, like go to 10 in my example Matt didn't have any of this But he did want to program his spectrum in machine code So he persisted
0: and so, my very first working assembly program, I remember vividly, I was at a, a swimming gala waiting for my, my turn to to swim. And so, I must have been 13 ish, 12. No, maybe younger than that, because I, yeah, there's a the part of the story we'll get to, but the, around 11, I would say, 11 or 12. And I'd written out very carefully by hand all of the assembly instructions for like a, just something which scrolled a piece of text at the bottom of the screen. Yeah. And then I had to obviously hand assemble it. That is, take the fact that this one is a an LDA, 6.2 with the equivalent bytes. And then I've, when I got home, I would type in the sequence of bytes, run it with my fingers crossed. And of course, no debuggers, no, no sort of feedback other than it either worked or it went horribly wrong. And I was very, very fortunate that probably for the first and only time in my career, a program I wrote on paper worked first time.
1: <laughs> and so it's almost like just like a simple lookup table, right? You're like... You're like, I want to add, but then for that, it's it's this hexadecimal code or something.
0: Exactly right. Uh, the, the 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 assembler's job is pretty straightforward. It gets a little bit more complicated because there are often opcodes or the like the primitive instructions that you want the computer to run for you have different ways of phrasing them. Like the the, the word is the same that the human writes, but depending on the context it's used in, you want to use a different um, a- actual Number,
1: it's like uh, it's like uh, '80s Sudoku. Instead of sitting by the pool f- figuring out numbers, you're looking
0: up. <laughs> you're looking at the charts. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and I mean, probably the most important thing that an assembler is able to do is to allow the programmer to define. Uh, labels and essentially go-to statements. So uh, I know everyone hates go-to and no one should be using go-to in any modern programming language, but when you get right down to the metal, that's pretty much all you actually have. So all the CPU has is arithmetic instructions, comparison instructions, multiplies, divides, loads and stores and things, uh, compares and then go-tos or jumps and branches. They're all basically the same thing. Now the branch location has to go to essentially a label. So you want to say like, hey, come back to this location. Like your Mm -hmm. average loop would be, you know, here's the top of the loop, do some stuff, decrement the counter. If the counter is not yet zero, then go back to the top of the loop. Those addresses obviously change because depending on the amount of work that you've done between the start of the loop and the end of the loop, the number of bytes of actual instructions may change. The address of where the label is may change. And so there's this huge rippling effect where if if the assembler wasn't tracking this for you, you would be on your poor hand-written uh, stuff, scr- scratching out everything that was an address and adding one to it because you just had to insert an instruction right at the very whole top of the program, and of course that's a huge pain.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. So, you know, when you were writing out all these programs, hand-assembling it and stuff, like I don't know, like what what did your did your family think or your friends did they did they think it was cool or that you'd gone
0: bonkers or? <laughs> I think probably the, the latter. So, in fairness, the hand assembling stage didn't last very long. But yeah, my family, I think, always thought I was a little uh, unusual in this. But I was very fortunate that um, that on the first day of my secondary school, so that would have been you know high school, just before high school age. I bumped into uh, a good friend, someone who became a very good friend, who was also very much into computing in the same level that I'm, I'm in. I'm still in touch with him, still great mates. And, you know, that, that allowed us to form a nucleation point for a bunch of similarly-minded geeky kids when, you know, nerdiness and geekiness was was not cool. I'm not sure it is cool now, but, like, maybe it's different than it was, especially in, <laughs> my, you know, night, late 80s, early 90s Britain.
1: Matt's school had a computer lab full of these computers, the BBC Micro, and he ends up getting a BBC Micro at home as well.
0: Uh, and so at lunchtimes, people were allowed to go in and and obviously use the computers to play games, of course, which was what everyone was going to do once you have a, a room full. So from that point of view, the computers were cool, and if you knew how they worked and could get like the latest games or whatever, then you were only cool to the, the people who wouldn't otherwise have thought you were cool in that room, in that context. So, you know, you've got a little bit of cachet there, but it didn't, it didn't necessarily flow outside into, you know, the, the, the PE lesson. Uh, not quite the same level of, of cool there for your average scrawny British
1: nerdy uh, kid. So Matt and his friends start making little
0: demo applications for the BBC Micro. We were writing little demos, like little examples of how cool you could make the computer run. And at the time, the, the same magazines that I used to buy in the in the news agents were always looking for new submissions. And so he mm-hmm. and I would send our submissions off to Acorn user, BBC Acorn user. And if we were very lucky, they would print them and they would send us £10, £20, £50 for like a star uh, rating. And now in, in, oh gosh, where were we? In like 1989 or 1990 era... 50 quid for two 14-year-olds was a lot of money. Thank you very much. So the pair of us did very well out of those. You know, the the kind of things that we were doing there would be like Mandelbrot generators, Julia set generators, um, just funny little programs that made nice pictures happen on the screen. Um, Around the time that I was talking about those mid-teen years when we were writing our stuff and, and sending it to Acorn user, the Atari ST was out, the Amiga was out. And they had vastly, vastly superior sound and graphics and everything, but, you know, we were doggedly hanging on to our old ways. But when I did make the leap, I made a leap to the 32-bit era. Um, so an interesting point, actually. So the Acorn that was the mm-hmm. company behind the BBC Micro, they knew also that the writing was on the wall for their 8-bit era. And they thought to leapfrog 16-bit too, They and And so some of the engineers that were working at Acorn at the time looked around for a CPU that could take them to the 32-bit era. They couldn't find something that they liked. They designed something, and they, they rather hubristically called it the Acorn Risk machine. This was the name for the CPU. The first re- revision of that chip was was never actually placed into a real computer, but the the computer that I had had the second revision of that chip and I've been talking about that chip all that time because of the the big reveal at the end of this is that the Acorn Risk machine became the Advanced Risk machine, which became the ARM chip. So the ARM chip yeah. was designed by the team that built the BBC Micro based off of their experiences of working with the 6502 in like the late 80s or mid mid 80s I should say. So anyway so nowadays you know, they're, they're ubiquitous you know there's about probably half yeah. a dozen of the damn things in my cell phone here um, they're everywhere but they they had their roots back in sort of like the, the era that I grew up in
1: so Matt heads off to university and he spends most of his time there not going to classes but writing games for his new arm machine
0: so uh, mostly um, this was before like virtual memory, before like process separation. Really, I, I, it was an interesting operating system. I mostly wrote um, little I, I, games. I tried to write some games. There's a game called Blurb that you, there's a video around somewhere that Richard, who I was still in contact with, and I wrote together. Probably the most important thing that I wrote on the the uh, the Acorn Archimedes, as it was called, was an Internet relay client, Internet relay chat client. So, if people remember back in the days of before instant messaging and things like that there was irc irc was essentially a federated network of messaging between hubs and you could send messages to each other and it was sort of interactive there were channels a bit like sort of slack groups these days and at the time the the um there wasn't a client for the 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 archimedes so i wrote my own but being the person that i was and the experience that i had had and not really having a C compiler, there wasn't C, C compilers. Uh, there were C compilers, but again, like the assemblers of my of yesteryear, you had to go and buy them. There was no GCC uh, that was right. available. So I took the very sensible approach of writing an Internet relay chat client in straight assembly. You know, <laughs> this is a fully windowed system, right? You know, you've got drag and drop windows. There's an operating system you're interacting with. There's clipboards. There's there's uh, you know, you're doing TCP/IP com- conversations and stuff. and it's you know, of course, assembly is the right thing.
1: I know how this goes. So get out my
0: pad of paper and start writing. <laughs> I guess Thank, you had an assembler. Thankfully, so. uh, the, the Archimedes uh, also had a built-in assembler, so that was not a big deal. But, but yeah, the whole thing was written in assembly. And in the middle of that, what the, the thing that was sort of de rigueur for the day was that your IRC client, um, so at the sort of computer lab, we were using whatever IRIX or um, um, you know Sun... Sonos systems that the computer mm-hmm. had, sorry, the computer department had available to us. So they were all Unix-y based and their Unix things all had, their, sorry, their, all their Unix uh, IRC clients all had scripting languages built into them so that you could, you know, have like things that greeted people when you joined the channel, you could like protect the channel, you could set the topic and all, you know, all the kind of rubbishy things that that people love to do in, in those kinds of environments. And so I, I decided I also wanted to have a scripting language in my, my, um, my IRC client, and so I, I added um, an object-oriented Basic into my uh, my my IRC client, oh, which well. taught me two things. One, the people who had written Basic the first time around on the on the Archimedes were amazing at what they were doing. Uh, so Sophie Will Wilson is the the person I know was most involved in it it's just amazing the the speed of it was phenomenal my interpreter was staggeringly slow in comparison so i had to you know i learned how bad i was at doing it. i was like well, even though i'm writing it in straight assembly it's not a uh, not a patch on what they had done uh and the second thing was that once you do this you know it was it was a shareware program so people were paying me 10 quid to to register it although it was free freely available on like um download sites and that kept me in beers in university so I've been nice. very fortunate that that I've had a couple of things along the way that have kept me in <laughs> in uh, decent, um, uh, yeah, decent. Um, uh, I can't think what I'm the right word is, but yeah, it kept me going. Um, you had financial, you had patrons. I, had, I did, I did, yes, I did, exactly. Um, but, um, once it's released, somebody smart realized that the, the scripting language, which I had started to write more and more of the system, like sort of bootstrappy wise, I'm like, well, I don't, why would I write this thing in my horrific uh, assembly code? But now I've got this language I can write. Oh, and so I would write it in that. And then things got out of hand. And before I knew it, I got a patch sent to me or other, an email saying, Hey, you, you know, you you can take your scripting language and do this. And someone had written a web browser, primitive web uh-huh. browser, a news reader, and an email client. In IR basic, in IR client, and I'm like, oh my god! Once again, and so that there, there, there's, I can't remember which rule it is now. There's like all programs expand until they can either produce or consume email. I think is yeah. is the rule, and uh, it was definitely the case for me. So that was my first sort of uh, interaction with somebody who I didn't know well, coming out of the blue and saying your your code's cool, but it can do this as well, and sort of showing me the way. It was a really interesting uh, moment. So oh, wow. yeah. That was, that was what I did with that. The source code to that is actually on GitHub now. I found it on an old hard drive. I was like, oh, gosh, now everyone can see how dreadful this stuff was. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's three in the morning. You're writing. You've got to think of another label name for your assembly loop that's the same as all the other loops that you've written, except slightly different. <laughs> and so it's called, you know, Womble Loop Jedi 3. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and it makes no sense. No sense, unless you're high on caffeine.
1: Matt spends his university writing games and on IRC and eventually he gets to the last year of school.
0: In about the last year of university I'd gotten chatting over IRC pleasingly enough with with somebody who worked for a games company and when I was starting to look for a job he suggested um, applying to them and I did and went along and uh, they they would I, the interview went very, very well. They said, when can you start? I'm like, well, I, you realize I'm still at university. Uh, and they're like, oh, uh, well, do you have to finish it? And I thought my parents <laughs> would crucify me if I didn't actually complete my degree. So they, they agreed to let me sort of come back as an intern during the summer holidays and things. Um, and But yeah, so I ended up working for a games uh, company called Argonaut Games. And they're, there's some amazing people I met and things I learned there were just, just quite something. But And I had a great time, but it was also a lot of long days into nights, weekends, all the sort of bad things you've heard about the games industry crunch. Uh, It was too. And, you know, looking back now with my, my more open eyes, I could also see that it was not a very good environment. You know, it was, it was a lot more toxic than it had any right to be. And so there were a lot of things that weren't good about it, but it, it was of its time is probably the most charitable thing I can say about it. <laughs> so by this point, I'd learned C begrudgingly and then I'd sort of graduated onto C++.
1: Let's not skip over that. So there must have been some point where you were like, hey, I can use a high-level language like C instead of assembler.
0: That's true. Assem- so yeah. I was definitely put off for the longest time because of the lack of a C compiler. I, I, I came across a hooky copy of the C compiler for the Acorn Archimedes, and at that time, and I'm not proud to say it, but I was very snooty about the code generator. You know, I'd spent my life writing assembly like it was the fluid language. And I mean, I look back and and I, and I can look back, thankfully, because of the hard disk image I found. The code's terrible. I can't believe that I thought I was good at it. Uh, and the compiler code probably was about the same level of quality. But of course, I didn't understand C very well. So I, I sneered down at it as like, a, a you know, is this is a macro assembler. Uh, gone bad. And now I look back and go, mm. that's actually probably a great way in you know, for, for an assembly programmer who was using macros to just say, well, I'll call this a function instead and now I've got a thing or I could use it, you know, hash define something and now I actually have got a macro and a real macro that works better.
1: I feel like this is a big moment for Matt. He finally admitted that a high-level language might be useful, that it might be able to write assembly better than he does. He's not no longer interested in assembly, like he's still going to look at the generated assembly, but... You know, he's willing to let the compiler write it. I think this foreshadows where he ends up. So Matt leaves the game industry. He moves over to the United States, to Chicago, and he gets a job at a trading firm doing market making
0: the best analogy I have for a, a market maker, which is not a very flattering one is, is like a used car salesman. Like I will buy your car for this price. Yeah. And then the guy who walks in immediately after you wants to buy the car from me. And I'm going to sell it to him for a lot more money than you sold it to me because my job is to warehouse the cars yeah. and provide like ballast for both sellers and buyers. And that's what a market maker is doing. They're someone who's in the market and that's how you can buy Google shares for at any price, because Somebody somewhere has got a big stock of them and is prepared to sell them, but also to buy more of them at a seemingly fairish price. And so that's what I spent the first few years doing, was doing uh, market making for uh, particular types of, of US stocks. And of course, everybody's playing a game where they're looking at the world and going, well, actually, maybe I'll prepare to pay a, a penny more or a penny less. And it's, so yeah. the thing is changing at a staggering rate. You know, like talking saturating a 10 gigabit Ethernet line with the changes, just the change information about one exchange. And there are like 14 in the mainland US. So it's yeah. a lot of data you're processing at essentially line rate or getting on towards line rate. Um, like the barrier to entry is you have to be able to consume this amount of data, make an intelligent decision about what you're going to do in amongst all of that. So obviously what you need to be able to do is react very quickly. Yeah. And whenever you want to react to stuff quickly and you want to deal with floods of packets, you turn to a compiled language. And in our case, we turn to C and C++. And so yes, we were uh, we I inherited a code base that was predominantly C sort of ninety-eight. So that's the like the original-ish mm-hmm. C era. And um, a couple of years in, we were looking at whether or not it would be okay to start adopting some of the new features that were coming in C11. All
1: right. So here you have Matt, who was begrudgingly dragged into C and C from assembly. And he works at a place where they struggle just to keep up with the market flow. And there are new convenience features coming to his language. Matt is now primed to become an expert on how the sausage is made. What happens inside of a giant optimizing compiler like GCC? And how does that affect his ability to write programs
0: that can keep up with the market flow? And so C++ eleven gave us two things to, to, and many other things, huge amounts of other things, so I'm glossing over those. But it gave us the auto keyword, which says, yeah, just the type of the variable is whatever the I'm equaling it to. So if you did like yeah. auto I equals zero, you're getting an in. Type inference. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know other languages have much more sophisticated uh, systems for doing this. Rust in particular is even more sophisticated. But like C++ is pretty much like whatever's on the other side of the equals determines what you are with some, of course, wonderful C++, strange caveats and, and asterisks and footnotes about the, the weird edge cases. But, you know, it wouldn't be fun if it was easy. <laughs> so we got auto, and we also got the range for. And so now I could just do for auto i colon vec, and now I'm getting all the, I, the integers i in the vector, and that's great. But obviously, well, not obviously at all. We had been burned previously in other languages. So there was a mixture of languages that were used in the desk. Some of it was written in Java and yeah. java is an excellent language but we had been bitten in java with iterators because yeah. if you iterate over an arrange of things in java a new object is created every time you do that you get a new iterator that goes over the object and we were the, the one thing that we the achilles heel of the systems that we had before was that we just basically couldn't afford to let them garbage collect yeah we had so much junk in there that we could it couldn't be done quick enough for our systems to be to remain on and in fact the GC thing, the first thing it would do is try and turn off the system so that we could spend hundreds of milliseconds churning through and then deal with the fallout of everything going wrong because we'd missed maybe some packets off of the wire while we were g anyway, all those things. So we were avoiding it by trying to not create garbage. And so this iteration idiom that we would have liked to have used in Java was, was off limits. We had to just, you know, for in i equals naught i is less than vector dot size equivalent in, in Java. And so yeah. when we said, let's use the, the new cool features in C++, quite rightly, the lead program was like, uh, are you sure that's the same? <laughs> and so pal and I sat down and we, uh, this has gone into law slightly now, so obviously the tail has grown somewhat in the telling. But my memory <laughs> is that we, we wrote like a very simple function in C++ and compiled it and just dumped the output with like obj dump and you know, the disassembler and the demangler and whatever. We did that a couple of times as we fiddled with stuff. And then I had the idea to use the Unix watch Command. Mm -hmm. And what Watch does is it runs the rest of the command over and over again, highlighting the differences. And so I was able to take the compiler and sorry, I was going to say like watch, run the compiler on temp test.c, pipe it through all these things to like demangle it, get rid of some of the, the the stuff that the compiler generates that I don't care about, and then show me that, please. And then I split the terminal in half and I had VI on one side and I had the results of this on the other. And so I was able to make changes and every 2 seconds it would it would immediately show me the assembly output. Can you picture it? Basically, we have a split screen.
1: On one side you have your text editor with a single file of code and then on the other side you have your generated assembly which the compiler emits. It's it's basically nonsense to me, but not to Matt, but but even to me, like if I change the idiom, it shouldn't produce a whole much more assembly. It shouldn't have new extra allocations. If something like that happens, then I know something's up and that I should look into it. And of
0: course, naturally, um, that was a very valuable and useful thing to be able to do, to just experiment interactively. I think, even even I at the time, C++ compilation is such a heavyweight activity that until my friend Jordan had sort of showed me how quickly he could just knock up a a thing in a temp directory that was all of like three lines and run the compiler, and I was like, oh yeah, actually it's not too bad, is it? It doesn't take too long. Of course it's quite fast to compile four lines of code. But, Until that had happened, I just would never have done it. I'd never have experimented in this way.
1: Once you have this tool, one performance question you might want to ask it is when are bit shifts a worthwhile optimization? Bit shifting is instead of multiplying a number, you shift it. So you shift an integer left is equivalent to
0: multiplying it by two, but it can be faster in certain circumstances if you look at like the Doom source code or the Wolfenstein mm. 3D source code, you'll see that it's c- covered with, you know, things like, oh, A equals A shifted up by eight plus A shifted up by two. You're like, what? And A shifts up by eight, that's 256. A shifts up by two, that's four. Oh, oh, you're m- multiplying it by 260. I see what you're doing there. But you're using shifts because shifts are faster. All right, and then you, you can sort of like say, well, okay, that's that's cool. But obviously the compiler knows this trick too. And the thing about the compiler, it's much more consistent about applying that trick than you are. And so, anytime you're multiplying by 260, he says I got you. I know what you're doing here. And uh, so, I, the, the the risk of revealing one of the big sort of spoilers in one of my talks about that, where I talk about this particular thing. What you can do is you can take a, a particular number. There's a number I, I forget which one it is. It's got like a certain number of set bits, and you like throw it in Compiler Explorer, and it and it, instead of using these shifts and adds that you you see if you like do multiply by 10, it just goes yeah. back to using a multiply. Like oh, compiler, you gave up. You gave up, didn't you? You decided that my number wasn't worth it. You're just going to use a multiply instruction. And so if you sit and pick it apart and go, well, this is, you know, A shifted up by 10 plus A shifted up by 4 plus A shifted up by 2 minus A because it's one less than all of that. Okay, right. And you put that into the compiler and you see, oh, and it still does a multiply. So I wrote it out as shifts and adds because that would be faster. And you turn it back into the multiply again. And it's like, no, you're stupid because you, those shifts and ads are no longer cheaper than the multiply. The multiply is five uh, cycles and you've just generated seven cycles worth of shifts and ads. And so even though you phrased a multiply as a bunch of shifts and ads, it was able to, again, unpick it and say, what are you actually doing? You're multiplying by one six 9, 7, 9, 7, 2. I'm just going to multiply by 16972. And the cool thing about that is that you can then go and say, well, I, I read this out of some Doom source code, which of course is 386 or 286 era. Yeah. If I tell it to target a 32-bit system and say the architecture is um, that CPU, it does indeed do the shifts and adds. It goes, no, oh, I got wow. you. I, I know that the, the multiply was like far too slow. I will use the shifts and adds. And then I, you look at the shifts and adds, and it's actually been cleverer than my, my example. So <laughs> it was able to unpick my shifts and adds, determine that it was a multiply by some high constant, and then it had a much better way of doing that that was still shifts and adds than my original way. And it's just like, this is why you trust the compiler.
1: Another optimization that Matt can see in action using his tool is vectorization.
0: So vectorization specifically is uh, an interesting technique where the the compiler is able to see that it might be worthwhile doing multiple iterations of a loop at the same time. CPUs have a number of instructions that that treat a register, which is maybe sixty four, one hundred twenty eight, two hundred fifty six bits wide. Instead of just treating it as a giant, giant number, it treats it as a structure containing a number of 32-bit values or 16-bit values or 8-bit values or a number of double precision numbers or single precision numbers.
1: That's crazy. I write a for loop and I say add up to all these things and it's like, yeah, I'll just add them up four at a time because I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It's so cool. And yeah, yeah and, and it, exactly. And and it does this for every loop, you know, every loop that it thinks is profitable. Whereas as an engineer, if you were like actually having to write this out longhand, like old Matt would have done, you'd have to be really quite devoted to to this to always use the magic instructions that do this this way and deal with all the edge cases. But the compiler will happily spit that out every time it sees a loop that it thinks is worthwhile to, which is just another reason, right? You know, be rather than being smart individually every time. Be smart once and take, teach the compiler to do it, and then everyone benefits from it all the
1: time. In other words, if there's some trick that you think can make your code faster, probably the compiler authors have already put that trick into the optimization part of the compiler.
0: I, I have all the time, by the way. I know you, know, you sort of scheduled it up to now, but I, I can keep talking until you're bored of listening to me, which, which is... Already you've shown a remarkable fortitude. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's super interesting. So my, my favorite example is counting the number of set bits. Mm. So if you have a number, a 32-bit integer, unsigned 32-bit integer, and you want to know how many one bits there are in that 32-bit value, yeah. it sounds like an, a pointless thing. It sounds like a, an interview question, which I think it probably is. But there are some <laughs> genuine reasons for doing it. They're used in like um, uh, packed uh, s- matrices that are you know very, very sparse matrices that have lots of zeros in them. Instead of storing all those zeros, you store a mask that says, well, which of the following values are populated? And then it just has the populated values immediately after it. So you need to sometimes uh, say, well, how many are there to get to the next row? Yeah, I, I don't need to justify it, really. It's just a thing that you might want to do <laughs> reasonably.
1: So there's a bunch of ways you might solve this. The easiest way is you have a 32-bit integer. You're just going to check if the first bit is 1, and then drop it off and keep checking 32 times. Then there's some optimizations you can make on that. If the whole thing's zero, you know, you're done, you can exit early. You could do some sort of bit twiddling hacks, etc.
0: But anyway, you write any of those ways on a modern um, computer, a, a modern compiler, and you turn the optimizer on to full, and you tell it that the architecture is like a modern PC, as opposed to the default, which is like the oldest thing it possibly supports. And it doesn't matter, pretty much any way you wrote that, it will take the whole thing and replace it with the pop count instruction, which is the how many bits are set in this register instruction. And that's just huh. mind-boggling to think of what's gone on there. You've taken essentially an order N or an order you know, set bits of N, any number of ways you could write it, and the, the compiler authors are like, we got you. We know what you're doing, even if you re- phrased it in all these different ways. There's a normalization pass inside the compiler. There's then tricks for noticing what you're doing, idiom detection, and then it's like, no, this is counting the number of set bits. We're going to replace it with the, that one instruction. And that's amazing. I totally agree. It is amazing.
1: It means that this interview question is easier to answer in assembly than in a high-level language because in assembly, it's just a single instruction. What does all this knowledge about
0: compiler optimizations tell us about writing high-level code, though? If the one thing that I want people to take away from all of this conversation is that compilers have moved on to the point now where even though it's so useful for you to understand what's going on right at the bottom and understand you know What the CPU's doing, what the RAM's doing, what the caches are doing, what the branch predictor's doing, that's great. It's wonderful. It's exciting. It's interesting. But don't necessarily think that you can't trust the compiler to know those things, or some of them at least, and, and take them into account. Trust the <laughs> compiler. Always trust the compiler. Write, r- you write code that's easy to read because the, comp- the human is more important than the compiler now. The compiler has your back, whatever you wrote. Mm. So don't trick yourself and write some natty little thing because you think it'll be a cycle faster or not. It won't be. The compiler honestly will beat you on almost everything that you can care to do. Write the code so that your colleague or you tomorrow morning when you haven't got coffee can understand and trust the compiler to just generate the right code. So in a
1: sense, you know, you're admitting defeat
0: from your old days. Of- <laughs> <laughs> in a sense, yes, but... In another sense, it's as if the scales have fallen from my eyes now. And there are just so many more smart people that work on compilers that have the time and the energy and the will and the clever ideas to add in these heuristics, these um, tricks, these knowledge of the ISA that's deeper than anything I would have these days. Um, Am I saying that you can't beat the compiler anymore? No, of course not. There's always a case where you know more information than the compiler. But the compiler is very, very good under almost all circumstances that you cared to do.
1: So Matt's a changed man, right? I mean, he had already moved on to using a high-level language, but now with his tool, you know, he can really see the assembly that's being generated and all the optimizations that are happening. And, you know, this is clearly something valuable. So he puts this up on a website, on his own personal website, godbolt.org, basically unchanged. You put your C++ code on one side and you see the result on the other. And this starts to spread inside of the C++ community.
0: Uh, until the, like the, the, my favorite story for the whole of this is that we were lucky enough to have the uh, Andre Alexandrescu, who was like the father of some of the template metaprogramming tricks. That you'll Mm. see there's a number of books he's written he came and gave some talks at drw about performance he he was then working for facebook and they were dealing with large data at scale and there was all these things and it was fun for me because i spent the whole time heckling him on like the assembly code he was showing just generally and so i kept pulling him up on that and he, he we had a good it was good banter back and forth and eventually at the end he said something along the lines of ah i think somebody told me there's a website that you can just put your code into uh, and it shows you what the assembly looks like. And at that point, I blushed bright red as everyone else in the room looked at me and like pointed and said, Yeah, it's his. I'm like, Oh, and now I feel like an absolute dreadful person for I feel not mentioning it.
1: Yeah. He came <laughs> to give a talk and you were like poking at him. And then he's like, I think I have a solution. You're like, Yeah, that's mine. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. So he and I have become friends now. So I think he's forgiven me for being <laughs> quite so dreadful. So I think we're all right on that front. Uh, but yeah, it's, so it it's it grew and grew and it probably took a couple of years before it became more well-known. So Godbolt.org now supports
1: many, many languages. Uh, 21, as I look right now. Maybe more by the time this comes out. I first came across it on Hacker News when somebody was posting a link about the ZIG language, like ZIG, and how well it optimizes down to x86 assembly. If you can read assembly and you have small examples godbolt.org has become sort of a rosetta stone for code performance one thing matt doesn't like about the tool though is its name yeah i mean i think that like people say to like to godbolt something
0: right (laughs) yes yes they do um it's something that yeah it's i have been in c++ committee meetings where somebody has said why don't we just put this in godbolt and see what happens and i'm like I'm in the room. You can't say that with me here. It's too. It seems sounds weird. I don't know.
1: It's it's fitting though, right? Because like, here's your story of always like. It seems like the punchline to each of your anecdotes is like, "to the assembly, let's see what right. it's doing."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think uh, you know there is a reason why it was me, or rather, like I was in the right place at the right time with all the right like background. For this to happen, right? So it, it, you're you're right. It is the punchline. <laughs> so I guess in that way, yeah. But I mean, it's it's luck. It's luck. I mean, that's that's the thing. People, I, I get invited to things like this now. This uh, enjoyable time talking to you, and I get I've been able to talk at, at various conferences that I would never have dreamt to as just some rando who writes C for a living. Uh, and it all came out of a lucky break where, you know, an afternoon's <clears throat> work with a friend and uh, and a bit of JavaScript <laughs> and, and, a, and a memorable last name. So that was the show. Matt, he recommends that nobody write
1: assembly now, but that everybody should be able to read it. And because of his interest in assembly and reading the assembly generated by compilers, He's become famous in this world of very performance-critical code. Check out godbolt.org where you can play around with the tool that he built uh, that he likes to call Compiler Explorer, but everybody else calls Godbolt. As I mentioned at the beginning, I got a new job at Earthly. If you go to earthly.dev or check it out on GitHub, you can see what we're building. Um, we just want to make builds better and, and builds faster and, and builds more reproducible. It's just kind of a, a, an ugly, complicated area. Um, So we have an open source tool and we're trying to make the build experience better. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.